You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Your connection to the scientific discoveries happening in the Finger Lakes community. Once underwater, I'm immediately struck by the wealth of life that's teeming here. I'm greeted by towering walls of reef coral festooned with sponges, soft corals, and crinoids. The water is sharply clear and the bottom is alive with 80% coral cover and hundreds of different species. That was Professor Drew Harwell, who was interviewed about her new book, Ocean Outbreak, by Vivian Lee our guest contributor today. Oceans are incredibly important, even for us in the Finger Lakes. Oceans cover 71% of Earth's surface, according to the Oceanic Institute, and contain 97% of Earth's water. And at the end of January, you may have cabin fever, so we figured we are going to take you somewhere far away from the Finger Lakes. But first, Let's listen to the science news. Hello, locally sourced science listeners. My name is Liz Mahood, and I'm here today with your science news. The next news story is another small victory in the fight against cancer. Research from the Nikitin Lab in Cornell's stem cell program has identified a potential causative agent of gastroesophageal cancer. The incidence of this particular cancer has increased 2.5-fold in the United States since 1970, and it is usually associated with a small chance of recovery. This cancer occurs at the junction of the esophagus and the stomach, the meeting place of two organs. Researchers in the Nikitin lab have found a particular type of stem cell called LGR5-CD44+, at this location in mice with gastroesophageal cancer. The presence of these cells it can also be found in non-cancerous patients, but patients with severe gastroesophageal cancer had increased amounts of these stem cells. They also had increased amounts of a certain protein called osteoponin, which stimulates the creation of more undifferentiated stem cells. The Nikitin lab has shown that patients with lower amounts of osteoponin and LGR5-CD44 plus cells have a higher survival rate. Future research aims to inhibit the proliferation of these cells as a cancer treatment. Their paper was published in the January 3rd edition of Nature Communications. Our final story today gives us more insight into how plants sense their environment. Researchers from the Schroeder and Klessing labs at the Boyce Thompson Institute have picked up on communications between plants and nematodes, which are small roundworms that are known to infect plant roots. This study focuses on a type of chemical called ascaricides, which researchers have previously found hasten puberty and aging in nematodes. This current study, published in the January 10th edition of Nature Communications, has found that plants have the capacity to recognize and modify ascaricides as well. This paper shows that when plants are grown with ascaricides in the soil, they can ingest these chemicals, modify them, and secrete the modified versions back into the soil. Additionally, the BTI researchers have found that these modified ascaricides induce nematode populations to leave the areas around these plants, suggesting that plants have evolved the ability to recognize and modify these nematode chemicals in order to prevent infections. 
this type of chemical hijacking may play out with other plant pests as well. That's it for the Science News. I'm Liz Mahood. One percent. That's the percentage of the ocean that coral reefs cover, yet they are home to more than 25% of all marine life. In the last 30 years, over 50% of the world's coral reefs have died, and up to 90% may die within the next century. You're probably wondering, why should we care? And what will happen? Hi. I'm Vivian Lee. Today, I'm going to dive deeper into the importance of coral reefs, the causes of their drastic decrease in population, and current conservation efforts. I am honored to speak with Dr. Drew Harvell, Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at Cornell. Her research focuses on host-pathogen interactions and the sustainability of marine ecosystems, including the very climate-sensitive coral reefs. Her studies have focused on how both coral and human health may be threatened by land-based pollution, in addition to coral disease being recognized as a significant drive of coral decline. She recently published her book, Ocean Outbreak, Confronting the Rising Tide of Marine Disease, which follows Drew and her colleagues as they investigate how corals, abalone, salmon, and sea stars have been affected by infectious disease outbreaks. You're probably wondering, why should people care about corals in the first place? What is their importance to us and the ecosystem? Well, that's a pretty good question, especially if you live in Ithaca, New York, like we do, because there's no coral reefs there, or at least the coral reefs there are very ancient. Uh, They're just fossil reefs. And so, you know, it's worth thinking about the real value of coral reefs is really essentially a global resource. So first off, for coral reefs, they're what we call a foundation ecosystem, and they're one of the highest biodiversity ecosystems on our planet. And so that's a reason why everybody should care. Secondly, that included within the biodiversity is very high fisheries diversity in terms of fisheries that people eat. Coral reefs are critical nursery areas for tropical fish. The other thing is coral reefs are also wave breaks for villages or towns or communities that live inshore from them. And so, for example, if there's a tsunami, a coral reef is absolutely vital in protecting the inshore communities from big waves and danger, essentially. Coral reefs are called the rainforests of the sea. I know in the past you've been able to experience diving in flourishing coral reef ecosystems. Could you describe what being in that healthy ecosystem really looks like? Yeah, I'd like to talk about that because we were able to do many dives all around the world. I think one of the ones that I'd like to describe is from Indonesia, and I'm going to read a section from my earlier book, A Sea of Glass, because it talks about what it was like to dive on this spectacular reef in Wakatobi National Park in Indonesia. Once underwater, I'm immediately struck by the wealth of life that's teeming here. 
I'm greeted by towering walls of reef coral festooned with sponges, soft corals, and crinoids. The water is sharply clear and the bottom is alive with 80% coral cover and hundreds of different species. We pause transfixed by fish in every color, size, and shape zipping around like small rockets. There are wrasses and clownfish and angelfish and butterflyfish. Within seconds, it's easy to see there must be at least 50 species of fish. It's a carnival of sea life filled with an exotic and breathtaking mix of creatures. Striped sea snakes undulate across the reef. Green turtles zoom by, unimpressed by our presence. Giant clams gape open to reveal fluorescent blue-spotted gill covers. And yellow and bright pink crinoids perch high on coral outcrops. As we go deeper, we start to drift ever faster along the wall and watch the pattern of Indo-Pacific biodiversity flash before us. There are sharks around, but we are so focused inward toward the reef, they could be dancing behind us and we'd never see them. How does this compare with a coral bleaching event and how do they occur? Also, what was your experience observing the coral reef die-off in Florida Keys after El Nino hit in 1998? El Nino was 1997-98, and it hit in the fall. We were there in October in the Florida Keys doing surveys of our soft corals, and many of the corals all turned white. It's a, just a stark, unsettling experience. It's as if the trees all around you suddenly all turn white, as if all their leaves were white and you're used to seeing them as green. We're used to seeing corals as brown, red, green, yellow, orange, pink, all kinds of colors, and suddenly everything was white. In that particular El Nino, which was a high degree of heat stress, we also pretty soon after the beginning of it started to see corals dying. And we studied one species of coral, normally a very beautiful purple soft coral, but it had bleached, so it was white. But the polyps, the living coral was still there, except that some of them then picked up an infectious disease and the tissue just was falling off them as they were dying. So uh, that was a really bad event. There were many reefs around the world. For example, the reefs of Palau in the Indo-Pacific, some areas experienced over 90% mortality. So the corals not only bleached, which means they lost their symbiotic algae that gives them color and also provides them food because they're solar-powered animals, but also they subsequently died from the heat stress or perhaps from infectious diseases. So these coral bleaching events have been increasing very rapidly over the last two decades in response to warming events. Going off of that topic, I wanted to know what would happen if corals go extinct and what repercussions would this have on our environment? Well, 
We have a lot of concern about that right now. The IPCC just released a report saying that if our average global warming exceeded the two degree limit, that over 90% of coral reefs are projected to die. This is sort of un, unfathomable to me as a biologist or as somebody who loves the ocean that we're directly causing the complete, not just in the endangerment, but the extinction of many, many species of corals and the complete loss of our most biodiverse marine ecosystem. It's just impossible for me to, to fathom that that this could happen. But we're talking about this happening now. And what would be the repercussions of it? Uh, the economies of a lot of developing or tropical countries would be severely endangered because they rely on coral reefs for fisheries. They rely on coral reefs for wave breaks. They rely heavily on tourism associated with coral reefs. And so it would be cataclysmic. If you're just tuning in, this is Locally Sourced Science. And today, we take you far away from the Finger Lakes and we are talking about oceans and ocean health. Professor Drew Harwell is at Cornell University at the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. And she talks to Vivian Lee about her new book, Ocean Outbreak, as well as the health of our oceans. Many people assume that corals are solely dying off because of increased water temperatures. Is it the heat stress that make them more susceptible to being targeted by pathogens? Most of our monitoring studies can detect the bleaching events. You can even monitor them from aerial overflights. But what's harder to know is when the corals die during or right after one of those events, what it actually is that killed them. And there was a beautiful study that was just released this fall where scientists on the barrier reef actually very closely monitored corals through and after a bleaching event. And they were able to detect infectious disease during about a two-month period during the bleaching event. And so that may be happening a lot. We think it is because the heat stress causes the corals to lose their source of food, right? Their symbiotic algae. So that makes them weak, which makes them more susceptible to a disease. And then a lot of the microorganisms can grow faster in warmer water. So they're getting an upper hand. What do you think is the most important action that needs to be taken in order to prevent the extinction of coral reefs? I really think the most important thing is a change in governance that will support reducing climate change and reducing greenhouse gases. This is absolutely vital. And so no other solutions are really going to be viable or helpful. In the shorter term, there are efforts to figure out whether there are refuges for corals from heat stress, whether there are reefs that are somehow more resilient. There's interest in trying to engineer somewhat more heat-resistant corals, but you know there's a limit on that. And if the warming continues, it's really not going to do any good. 
There are also captive breeding programs to bring corals into aquariums where they're protected from climate warming. In response to these events, coral restoration efforts have been on the rise with techniques including coral gardening, artificial reefs, and larva collection. In 2014, Dr. David Vahan, program manager at Moat Marine Laboratory in Summerland Key, Florida, made a groundbreaking discovery after accidentally breaking a fragile coral only to find two weeks later that the coral had multiplied to four times its original size. This amount of growth would have typically taken two years for Dr. Rahan, which inspired him to develop this technique of microfragmentation to exponentially increase the rate at which corals grow. There's also a lot of interest in trying to restore coral reefs that have been damaged, and that's where microfragmentation is uh, an interesting process because by working with very small pieces of corals, the, the growth rate when they're transplanted is quite high. But my feeling has always been, I would rather protect the reefs we have than try to build them back up because it's a really hard process to do. We really need to understand that if we don't stop or slow climate change, there will not be reefs, and nothing else that we can do with conservation is going to help that in the 20 to 50 year time frame. What is something any person can do to support these conservation efforts and help change the future of coral reefs? I really think right now the important thing is to pay attention to our governance and to pay attention to electing leaders that are going to fight to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and reverse the threat, the huge growing juggernaut of climate change. There certainly are, you know, coral conservation efforts. There are some important local actions in terms of creating marine protected areas where corals can be healthier and have fewer stresses, which will help them through some of these heat wave events. In addition, you've mentioned before about how plastic pollution affects corals. Would the reduction of plastic waste also help in this situation? The plastic problem does indeed contribute to disease on coral reefs. We did a study led by a postdoc in my lab, Dr. Jolie Lamb, and surveyed reefs in four Southeast Asian countries from Australia to Thailand to Myanmar to Indonesia and found that the risk of disease for a coral was over 80% higher if it was in contact with plastic. And so these were, you know, plastic bags that were sort of tangled on the coral and fishing gear, all kinds of um, plastics that had been washed downstream from rivers or on the surface of water and then sunk and were entangled on the coral. And these were causing high levels of coral disease because they abrade and tear the surface open of the coral skin. And, and uh, they can also convey infectious diseases just from being dirty and carrying bacteria around. So certainly reducing plastics is an extremely good idea. 
Finally, would reducing a person's carbon footprint also help solve this issue? Yeah, I think this is really important. I mean, we all work very hard. I personally work very hard to reduce both my plastics use and my carbon footprint because how can we ask the world to do this if we can't do it ourselves? Reducing carbon footprint is something that everybody can do. But I think it's also important to not feel that by doing that, you've solved the problem. You have to take the next step and really pay attention to your elected officials and whether they care about climate change, whether they care about the environment, and be careful to vote for the right people. Again, I'm Vivian Lee, and you can find out my full story on corals at vivianleescience.wordpress.com. I'd like to thank Dr. Drew Harvell again for sharing her expertise with coral reef ecosystems and inspiring us to take these simple actions in our daily lives. If you can, check out her research at harvelllab.wordpress.com. This is locally sourced science, and we bring you news, scientific information, and everything that's happening in the sciences in the Finger Lakes area. We are talking about oceans and ocean health. Colin Love, who was the island coordinator for Shores Mary Laboratory on Appledore Island last year, was interviewed by Zach Belido. We would love to hear from you. So if you have a Twitter account, tweet at us at FLX Science Radio. My name is Zach Belito, and I'm here with Island Coordinator Colin Love, here to discuss marine parasitology with us. Thanks for coming, Colin. Yeah, thanks for having me. I look forward to chatting. Do you think that parasitology would become more recognized if the medical field and marine biology and ecology shared more interactions with each other? I think yes, because the medical field has more attention and pertains more to the average individual, whereas especially those that are living in inland states, marine parasitology is probably something that has never come across their mind. Even those living on coastal states probably don't think about it either. But I think through media, if those two fields somehow could work together, there is definitely potential for marine parasitology or just ecological parasitology to get more attention. I think that there's a lot to learn from ecological parasitology because we can study parasites and how they're impacting the food web as a whole and then how behavioral changes you know, connect to the medical field as well. I'm sure parasites between those two fields have similar impacts on their hosts. So giving both attention is probably pretty important. What do you think students, particularly high school and college students, could gain by being exposed to marine parasitology? I think that science right now is shifting and has been shifting towards a more of an ecological or ecosystem approach to science versus it used to be very species specific. And so I think you know, what they could learn from marine parasite ecology is that it shows a connectivity in the system. When you have one individual being impacted, it has a, a rippling effect. And I think that that really helps to deliver that message and, you know, helps us to see the big picture and draw connections rather than focusing on one species or one region or resource within an, an ecosystem. So 
So can you describe how you recorded data in the field? What I was doing was I was measuring how predation rates of green crabs vary after they've been infected with parasites because I wanted to see if these crabs were behaving differently during high tide when they were not subject to predation by gulls. And while I was doing that, what I was observing was the parasitized crabs were that were infected were acting lethargic and they were actually not foraging during high tide. Rather, they were still hiding underneath ascophyllum or other marine debris. And the uninfected individuals were acting normally. So that indicated that there was a behavioral change after being infected by the parasite. Do you think the diversity of subtitle crabs and parasites are declining as a result of the invasive green crab? So that's a really complex question because... A lot of people don't define the green crab as an invasive anymore. They arrived roughly 200 years ago and have definitely made their presence known since then. And I think that originally, yes, there was an impact on the native fauna when the green crab got here. We saw the rock crabs, Jonah crabs moving further into the subtital, which decreased their range and resources to survive. So we, I think that impacted the native population there. But now we're looking at other invasives that have entered the area, like Hemigrapsis sanguineus, which is the Asian shore crab. It's a smaller species, but it's far more aggressive when it comes to foraging. And I think that individual is now pushing the green crab further into the subtital, which is as a result, decreasing the range for our native species, again, the rock crabs. So parasites are often overlooked in food webs in ecology. They actually are more abundant than predator-prey relationships in food webs. So they, they're there, we just don't see them, and so it's easy to overlook them. Also to add to that as well, you know, you have invasive species on the rise, and when we're carrying organisms via trade or through recreational activity, it's important to know who else could be hitchhiking along with those individuals. Definitely. Thanks for coming, Colin. Thank you. I appreciate it. If you'd like to hear more or would like to listen to older episodes, you can go to locallysourcedscience.org or you can subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app. And now let's hear about local events from Esther Rakusin. I'm Esther Rakusin for Locally Sourced Science, and here is the science event calendar. On Saturday, January 25th at 2 p.m., visit the Science Center in Ithaca for showtime, Food Microbes. Learn all about food microbes, the good, the bad, and the ugly, with students from Cornell's Dairy Fermentation Lab. The Science Center is located at 601 First Street in Ithaca, and there is a fee for admission. For more information, visit sciencecenter.org. The next Science on Tap lecture takes place Wednesday, January 29th at 7 p.m. You'll hear a presentation from Assistant Professor Madeline Udell of the Cornell Department of Operations Research and Information Engineering. She'll talk about how data scientists analyze data sets in politics, healthcare, and beyond. Science on Tap takes place at the Casita del Palares at 1201 North Tioga Street in Ithaca. The event is sponsored by North Star House Restaurant and WHCU Radio. Learn about the evergreen trees in our local landscape at the upcoming conifer walk at the Cornell Botanic Gardens on Thursday, January 30th from 12 to 1 p.m. 
Join tree horticulturists for a walk through the conifer collection and winter garden to learn the basics of conifer identification and their natural history. The walk will last approximately one hour. Please dress appropriately for the weather. A contribution is requested. Meet at the Brian C. Nevin Welcome Center, located at 124 Comstock Knoll Road in Ithaca. For more information, visit cornellbotanicgardens.org. And finally, visit the Museum of the Earth at the Paleontological Research Institution on Sunday, February 9th for Free Sunday. Learn about the history of our planet, see a variety of fossils, marvel at the right whale skeleton, and visit live corals and fish in the Coral Reef Exhibit. Learn about the incredible world of bees at the exhibit Bees, Diversity, Evolution, Conservation. The Museum of the Earth is located at 1259 Trumansburg Road in Ithaca. For more information, visit priweb.org. And that's all for the Science Calendar. For Locally Sourced Science, I'm Esther Rakusin. We hope you enjoyed the show and it helps you a little bit with your cabin fever. Today, we had two guest contributors, Zach Bellido and Vivian Lee. Liz Mahood read you the science news and Esther Rakusin told you about the local events. If you need more science in your life, visit locallysourcedscience.org and listen to other episodes. We would like to thank Cecce Giannotti and Joe Luis for the great music and voiceover. My name is Mark Sharvari. Science out! <laughs> <laughs>